Now then, we are continuing with our theme of study in the book of the Revelation. And in particular, this morning, I want us to consider many of the things we've already learned, but we want to underscore these lessons before we move on. But I want to consider particularly the way in which the book of the Revelation reveals to us and has revealed to us the nature of the world in which we live. That's the first thing. It reveals to us what the world is all about, why it is what it is, how it works, what's driving it, and where it's going. The the world, the revelation to us of the world in which we live, and then the life of the Christian in that world. We are told it quite plainly, it's revealed to us. And I want to take us through that in some way this morning as the Lord helps. Now, as a background to that, I firstly want to read in Thessalonians. And turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. Just a phrase there, really, or a, a description there in Thessalonians chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. <coughs> Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. And it says there, For the mystery, the, the hidden truth, that is, the hidden truth, the mystery, something that needs to be revealed for us to understand, the mystery of iniquity already works. The only reason it hasn't totally exploded is because He who now restrains or holds things back, and we've seen that in Revelation, the way he who sits on the throne is always in control. He who restrains, he does restrain until he is taken out of the way and until restraint is lifted and then final judgment comes. But I want you to get that idea of the mystery of lawlessness working already in the world of today. And that, of course, explains where we're at. What happens with lawlessness is that people cast off the rule of God, the laws of God. They trample them. They throw them aside. They refuse to bow to them. They set up their own system of law, and they set up their own gods. And the mystery of lawlessness is already happening. And that pretty much explains the day in which we're living in the Western world, isn't it? You see the casting off of God and of his laws. So that's one thought about the world in which we live. Keep it in your mind. And then go to John's Gospel, chapter 16. Remember, John wrote Revelation. John wrote a Gospel. And in his Gospel, he's laid some of the foundations which underpin, or he lays the foundations which underpin the pictures which he saw in Revelation. And this is what it says about our life in such a world. Verse 33 of John 16. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. Thank God for that. You're living in the world where the mystery of lawlessness and the overthrow of God is on every hand, but in me ye might have peace. In a troubled, crazy world. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to solve anything. It's all true, you know. And they're so anxious and upset and distressed. But in, the, in me, while you're in the world, that is, 
you might have peace. In the world, from outside, what do you get? You're going to have tribulation. That needs to be underscored. <clears throat> that means there's trouble, there's persecution. In the world, you shall have tribulation. Contrasted with, in me, you shall have peace. But he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Go back to chapter 15. And you look at verse 18. <clears throat> if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. That's very strong, that. Not a question of doesn't like you or isn't comfortable with you. The word's hate. Hate's a... A powerful emotion, very powerful. It's a driving force in the heart of a man. Once it's there, it'll lead to murder. It says, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, and I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is the reality of the life or the position of the Christian in the world. It's in a society, it's in an environment where there is hatred. Remember that I said unto you, the servant's not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep their, yours. Now that gives you some idea of where we're going on these thoughts. Now come to the Revelation, chapter 1. The book of the Revelation, chapter 1. It's remarkable how it, how it starts. It reveals things to us. Revelation 1, you've got, you've got to stay on verse 1. Just stay there for a minute. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the prime revelation in this book. The, the prime truth that God has unfolded. And we dealt with that last week. The truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, who he really is. That's so important to grasp. Please, he is both Lord and Christ. No, he's not the carpenter's son anymore. He's not the man walking the streets of Galilee. He has moved on. And he is both Lord and Christ. We saw that. Who he is, where he is, not in Galilee, not on the cross. He's on the throne. What is he doing? He is building his church. What is he doing? He is holding in control on that throne everything that's going on in the affairs of mankind and in the entire universe in which we live and in our individual life as well. He is there. He is in control. He restrains. He moves. He uses all things. And that's why we've got peace in the world. We know in whose hand the whole thing is. That's what he's doing. What's he going to do? He's going to come again. You're going to take us out of judgment and come in mighty power and glory in judgment and he will judge the world in righteousness. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to come again. So that's verse 1. <clears throat> All right. But now look down at verse 9. Look at this remarkable introduction John gives about himself because he actually reveals the truth of the pictures that follow. That is the kind of world in which we live and the life of the Christian in such a world. You read that for yourself, let me read it with you, and just let, it, let the words in as you're going. <coughs> John says, I, John, who also am your brother. In other words, 
you know, we're related, yes, but we're all in this together. And companion, in what? In tribulation. In the world you shall have tribulation. That is persecution, that is trouble. And in the kingdom, and in the patience of Jesus Christ, the endurance that we've talked about and learnt about so much from Revelation. And he says, here I am in this world and I'm with you and I'm on the Isle of Patmos and we're all, as it were, in the same situation in the world where there is tribulation, where the kingdom of God is the central thing in our mind. And we are in the patience of Jesus Christ. We are in the, that time of endurance and pressing on in the pathway with a focus being on the kingdom of God, experiencing the tribulation or the trouble that comes to us and the persecution from the outside world. But he says, I'm on the isle that's called Patmos. It's the loneliest, bleakest, harshest place of the slate mines and John, an old man, he's been exiled there. But he says, the thing I'm here for is the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why I suffer. That's why I endure. That's why I don't mind the tribulation. I'm focused on the kingdom of God. And he says, I am here for the sole reason of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Christ. Now that sums up the, that sums up your life and my life as believers in this hostile world. Where is our focus? We're aware of persecution. You must expect persecution. But the focus is on the kingdom of God and the reason is what the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. You remember how those were Described in Revelation, these are they who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman that was persecuted. Do you remember? <clears throat> Those that were there in the, uh, the time of judgment of the angels and so on. That's how they are described because this is such a tremendous, a beautiful description of what the believer life is all about in the world and what we can expect as a result of that. So let's just look for a minute and get these things in our mind. The world in which we live. Well, you can read Timothy and Paul will say, you think it's bad? Well, it's going to wax worse and worse. And it is indeed. It's a world that's climaxing in its evil and ultimately coming under the judgment of God. And the revelation is giving us insight into the society of evil that actually makes up the world in which we live. The whole sort of driving force behind it, the intentions and the activities of Satan are seen in those recurring pictures that we have in the book of the Revelation. How he works, and by the time you've seen these pictures and the time you've learnt the lessons that come from them, you you sort of start to realize that, that nothing happening by chance. It's not just this man rises up and he's bad and the next one rises up and he's good and the next one rises up and he's okay and each one changes the direction of affairs. It's not like that. This is a, a systematized, an organized, powerful affair 
whereby there is something at work which is coordinated and mighty and powerful and dark. And you start to realize that Ephesians 6 is pretty much right, you know. The rulers of the darkness of this world, the the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, that there is such a thing as spiritual wickedness in high places, and there is an organized mighty forces of evil, all destined to dethrone God and dethrone Christ and destroy the people of God. And we need to get that revelation in our minds clearly, not to bring fear. No, no, no. In him we have peace. That's not the point of it. But we don't want to be ignorant of his devices. You've got to know how the devil works because you get fooled by him. And we could do sermon after sermon on the way in which we as Christians and the Christian church has been deceived by things that Satan has done and they didn't know that it was him that it was at work until the disaster struck. And you see, what's happening is we're going through Revelation, we're finding these things out and we're getting really revealed to us something of the, of the meaning of this mystery of iniquity that is already at work. It's a powerful force. It's the idea of lawlessness being cast off and it's an unorganized thing. We're getting pictures through Revelation of <clears throat> how sin actually works. And it starts off by showing you what happens as sinful men in their lawlessness, organized by Satan, cast off the reign and the rule of God and his commandments. And you sort of see, you start to see the sordid depths of sin. My word, it's, it's so ugly. It's, you read that dreadful picture of the woman Babylon, which is really the most sordid picture of systematized, organized evil that you could ever paint with words or with paintbrush. And she's sitting there in all her vile ugliness and all her flagrant ungodliness, in all her total filthiness with the cup of her fornication. And she's drunk, you know, on the blood of the prophets. And everybody's all intermingled and intermeshed with her foul and filthy ways. The kings of the earth are all made their alliances with her. They're unclean alliances. They're all involved in the system and the people of commerce and the merchants of the earth and the finances and the politics, it's all mishmashed into a life of luxury and defiance against God and the worship and in the indulgence of the self. And you think, oh, you know, how much worse can this get? I, I would never have even thought that it was as bad as that if, if I hadn't been sort of written down for me to see and get revealed to me. Now, you remember John, he went on a tour with the angel who was his guide and showed him the woman Babylon, showed him the system of evil. And then John says in in chapter 17, he said, when I saw it, he said, I was astonished with sore amazement. You know, he was was flabbergasted. He just thought, goodness me, I never knew evil was as bad as that. Do you know what happened in the next chapter? The angel says, hi, John, why are you astonished? Why are you surprised? Did you expect something good out of evil? Did you expect sin to be better than than what I've just shown you? Don't you understand? And let us understand that evil, Satan and sin have their origin where? From the bottomless pit. That's where they belong. Have you ever thought about a bottomless pit? 
You say, well, I, I've just always thought how bad and vile and filthy and wretched and evil and rebellious sin is, and I've gone down and down and down, and now I've seen the woman Babylon in the pictures in the Revelation, and my, you know, I've gone lower and filthier and deeper and muddier and more turbid and dark and black. Yeah, but wait a minute, it's a bottomless pit. There's depths down deeper than you can ever plumb. Indeed, you can never stop going down in a bottomless pit. That's the point of it. The depths of evil. Like those believers as in Thyatira. The depths of Satan is mentioned there. The depths of Satan. And that's, see, you're getting an understanding as you're reading Revelation of what's going on in the world in which we live. You're getting the idea of the deception of sin. There's terrible deception in the book of Revelation. Terrible deception. You know, you can be deceived by the, deceived by the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And if sin starts to deceive you, your heart starts to get hard and you start to be drawn away from the Lord. You see, there's a beast there, doesn't he? He does miracles and wonders and he comes and he appears to, first of all with horns like a lamb and he, he, you think he looks all right, this one, like a lamb, and, but he speaks like a lion and, uh, He's got lies and sighing, lying wonders and signs and he operates on the basis of deceit. And, and then you read through Revelation and you see this evil system and you see the evil in the world. It never seems to stop. The way in which that beast was described there that came out of the earth, you know, this is the beast, it says, that he, he what well, he was and he is not. And he is. It's a crazy description. What do you mean by that? Well, it's like this, you know, we read history, and I remember we were brought up on reading Fox's Book of Martyrs and the history of all the martyrs of the church, and when the first time I ever went to England when I was in my 20s, I followed the martyrs through England and looked at all the monuments and read all the stories and thought, oh man, what a terrible history has been in the past, and the persecution of the people of God and a society that was so anti-God, that's like that beast that was, you know, all that was. But my, I'm grateful to be living today when things are so much more pleasant and people, you know, the Christian message is so much more acceptable. You know, the, the beast that was, uh, <coughs> and he is not. Oh, blow me down, he's back again, and he is. See, that's the point, he's relentless. It's a bit like the Lord Jesus, remember? He, he, the, Satan took him, at the, he faced him front on in battle in the temptations. You know what it says at the end of the temptations? And he departed from him. Satan departed from him. For a little while. He was back there at the cross, stirring up the multitudes, you see. And that's, what the, what's, that's getting us a little picture of the world in which we're living now. There's deception, there's relentless nature of Satan. And there's, when you read through the way evil works and the beasts and the pictures and the dragons and so on, I mean, they are absolutely horrific creatures. There's frightening power in sin. Frightening power. There's sordid depths. There's total deception. There's a relentless, unceasing nature, a determination to continue. I mean, even that beast, when he got a deadly wound, he wasn't dead, was he? He should have been, but he was up and at it again. He should have been dead. That's the idea of the head with a deadly wound, a mortal wound, but not him. He's self again. And it's got this frightening power, the very imagery of dragons and beasts and so on. And not only that, <clears throat> sin has a frightening power over individuals. There's nothing more dreadful than to see people under the grip of sin. 
in the grip of sin. And Revelation unfolds those truths to us in the pictures. I mean, you think of those when the vials are poured out. I think it's vial number six, yes, and things are getting absolutely desperate. And men are crying out to the rocks to fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb and so on and so on. And then it's, you think, well, they, they just, can't they just turn and call for mercy? But it says they repented not. They didn't repent of their works. In the face of that, they didn't repent of their works, didn't repent of their fornications, of their idolatry, of their thieving, and so on and so on and so on and so on. Didn't do it. Sin had got them in its grip, you see. You see the power of sin, don't you? The strength of sin. You see how strong evil is. And there's something frightening about that. Even when we're going to read in chapter 16 of the pouring out of the vials, the, wrath, the bowls of wrath, the final pouring out of the enormity of God's wrath against sin, well, don't they cry out for mercy again? They don't. They blaspheme the name of God. Why? It's sin, you see. It's sordid depths. It's powerful deception. It's relentless nature. And it's fearful and it's frightening power. Now you see, this is the world of systematized evil that we live in. This is the mystery of lawlessness or iniquity which is already at work. And it shows us very plainly the two great weapons that Satan uses in his battle against the people of God and against the purposes and the plans of God and against the man whom he has set, he is anointed upon his holy hill of Zion. It shows us the two things. First one is that that vicious brutality, right? And it is a vicious brutality. that I've, We've just l- talked about it in mentioning the beast and so on and so on. And, and you see it in the pictures, like in chapter 12, you see a woman about to give birth to a child and there's the dragon, you know? He's going to kill that child. He's going to kill it. And then there's a woman and she flees and the, the child's caught up to God and to the throne. Thank God for that. And then it's the woman he's going to get. A woman, a poor, helpless woman. He's going to pursue her to the corners of the earth, but he doesn't get her. And then it's the, it's the seed of the woman that he's going to get, you see. There is vicious brutality, there's cruelty, there's persecution, and there's death. That's what's in his mind, you see. There's hate. There's the driving force of a world that hates that which is good, and that which is God, and that which is of God, the people of God. And the weapon that he's using here, <clears throat> in his vicious brutality, is the weapon of fear. The weapon of fear. I tell you, people living in other societies, not so much in the West, but certainly in the darkness of communist country, they live in fear. Absolute fear. They don't know what's coming next. Now, the other weapon that he uses is deception. Those are the two major weapons. There's there's other ways and means, but they're variations of this theme. They bring... He will use fear to force you. He will fear to drive God's people in the wrong direction. And he will use deception when he can't use fear. Now, deception is a misrepresentation of truth. Taking truth and altering it just slightly so that it is misrepresented. Or taking evil and altering it and misrepresenting it so that it looks like good. You got the idea? And the whole intention of why it's being done is because you want to mislead somebody else into following a path that you want them to follow. 
which they would never follow if they knew the truth. Deception. This is what's coming into the Western world. Total untruth. Misrepresentation of truth in order to influence a society to believe certain things, even though they are not true, but they'll be portrayed in such a way that what's being said will look to be true. That's what the press is all about now. That is what the press is now all about. Used to be, in the good old days of the gentleman, they read the London Times because you got the unvarnished truth of facts of what went on, and they just reported what actually went on. You don't get that anymore today. It's, it's a skewed version of what the systematized evil wants to be portrayed. And they make truth falsehood. And they make falsehood into truth. They make good look like evil. My word, they do. And then they'll make evil and they make it, trying to make it look like good. So it's deception. Indeed, they're so good at it in Revelation that this horrible-looking critter, the beast, the, that, all those heads and horns and crowns and wounds and fire and a bit of a leopard and a bit of a bear and a bit of a lion. and They actually think he's God. Now, that's pretty good. They, they're so deceived. They actually think he's God and they're ready to worship him. <clears throat> they can set up an image of him, right? And the image talks. Images don't talk. But it looked like it talked. It sounded like it talked. And somehow or other, a voice came from it. Absolute deception. But when you see this kind of miracle, well, that's it. You're off. You're going to believe it. Now, that's the whole idea. So you've got fear, all right? And then you've got deception. Now, what are the antidotes, really? How can the believer live in a world like that and not just get absolutely ruined? You know, just overwhelmed, misled, go the wrong way, uh, whatever you like to call it. How can you do it? In simplicity, and let's keep it simple, because frankly, fellow believer, you don't have to be a genius, you don't have to be a historian, you don't have to be an academic, and you don't have to be a theologian to live your life in the world for the glory of God. You've just got to be a simple believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who's been washed in the blood of the Lamb, who's been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and who's got the Word of God in your hand and you've got a pair of knees you can bend and you can pray and you've got two eyes and you can read and you've got two ears and you can listen and you can love the Lord and you can follow Him. That's the truth. And I want to keep it that way, at that level. Because it all gets so complicated when you get past the simplicity that is in Christ. And the serpent... As he deceived Eve by his craft, so also he will deceive us to take us away from the simplicity which is in Christ. There are truths which are clear-cut, straight and simple, like solid stones on which you can place your feet. Take those truths from God's word, stand upon them and say, I'm standing on the promises of God. They are clear-cut. They are not fuzzy edges. All right, they can be grasped quite clearly and they can be fully understood and completely trusted in. No, they don't have to be debated at higher levels as to tenses or, well, you know, grammar or syntax or perhapses or maybes or cultural influences or whatever. Just believe what it says and be blessed. You see, 
the antidote to fear is actually just faith. The antidote to fear is faith, right? Now, you know, we need a strong faith. That's what the believer needs to have. In an ever-increasing evil world, you need a, a very strong faith. And all that means is, when I say that, what I mean by that is it's a faith that you nourish. You grow in it. You nourish it by prayer and the word of God. Those are our two weapons to combat what's around us. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying in all seasons. And that's really, in simplicity, that's how you live your life. What do you do? You're reading your Bible and you're praying. In other words, all the time you are looking to God, that's faith. You're looking outside of yourself. Don't look in there because you're far too frightened and fearful and you will fall to bits because you know how weak you are. But you're looking up above. You're looking to God. You're looking to the throne of God to find grace to help in time of need. And that's what you're doing in faith. You are looking to God. You are trusting in God. You are resting in the Lord. You are proving that in me you do have peace. And it's, may I say it, it's as simple as that. But in the same time it's as beautiful as that. The thing that overcomes the world, says John when he writes his epistle, it's even, it's our faith. It's that ability given by God to receive his word to be able to hear his voice and to discern and to understand the blessings of the deep things of God. And that is the blessing of the simplest believer who has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within them. So, for fear, we have faith, a faith that's nourished. I think it's Second Peter, isn't it, that tells you how to nourish your faith. It says you have, you've received like precious faith but he says what you've got to do to your faith is you have now got to use all diligence to add to it you see virtue knowledge self-control endurance patience godliness brotherly kindness and love you see that's what it's all about a faith that's being nourished in the good word of god the other thing that's the antidote to deception the thing that is the antidote to deception is that you learn to have wisdom and discernment. Now, I'm not making that up. I'm drawing that straight out of the book of Revelation. If you remember, in chapter 13 and verse 8, it speaks there of those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. And in verse 18, it says, Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. In other words, he's saying, now look, all this is going on, all this deception is happening, all these things are going wrong, but he said, the fact is this, that you can have, and you need wisdom, and you need discernment. Because you need to be able to separate the true from the false. There's lots of false. We need to be able to separate the true from the false. Because the false is so good. It's so good that it will look like the true. It'll always have the number on it, 666. You see, it'll be the best representation 
that Satan and his emissaries can produce. They can't get to 777. That's God's number. That's how God works. In the perfection, seven in creation, you remember? All the sevens going through Revelation, that's God's number. So Satan will say, well, I'll get it to look exactly like God's ways and aha, this will deceive, deceive, deceive. But he says, wait a minute, let him that has understanding count. In other words, look clearly at what you're seeing and just see what it's really like. Is it really the hand of God or is it the number of a man? Is it the, is it the hand of man? It hasn't got there. There is a difference. I'm sorry, it's not the real thing. That's wisdom. That's how it works. That's discernment. You say, well, I'm not very clever about that. <coughs> well, none of us are very clever, but I'll tell you something about the scriptures and, what it, and some advice from that. When you're faced with situations... You never, a Christian is someone who never acts quickly. Impetuous is the waters, you'll have no preeminence, says Jacob to his son. You see, don't act from the hip as a reaction. You act carefully and you act prayerfully. That's how you live in a world of, like, with all this deception around. There's a carefulness, there's a, an awareness, there's a watchfulness. You're doing it prayerfully, you're doing it carefully and you, you, you learn to think biblically what do you mean, how do you learn to think biblically without getting some grand degree in theology do you know how you learn to learn, think biblically you saturate your mind with the word of God you saturate your mind with it, it's always in your mind you're always reading it you're always seeking to be blessed by it. You're also always asking God through his Holy Spirit to guide you into the truth of it and to reveal blessed things out of it. And it's, it goes on day by day until you're finally like a sponge, you're just sucking it in, sucking it in, sucking it in. And, and you're aware of your own inadequacies and what you don't know. And then you read the book of James and he says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. Hey, that's all. Let him ask. So we're all asking. Why? Because we all lack wisdom. But you know, it's the one thing he will give freely and he'll never tell you off for not having it. He'll never upbraid you for asking for wisdom. There's a lovely old hymn we used to sing, and they that wait at wisdom's gate are never empty sent away. It's lovely that. Never. He will always bring that wisdom down from above. You see... There's something even more here. That's the way the whole thing works. As you're, you're praying and you're watching and you're waiting and you're seeking and you're reading and you are leaning and you are looking and you are trusting and you are relying. This is the Christian life. John says that, you know, you've got an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. You don't need anybody to teach you right, wrong, good, bad. What that means is you've got an anointing from the hand of God himself, whereby through that which he has placed upon you and within you, there is something there which gives you that, almost like a litmus test, or you know, a red light, a green light. It gives you the sense in your own soul that, hey, wait a minute, this is wrong. Oh, the experts say, well, you tell us what's wrong with it. You say, well, actually, I can't. But you know, when I pray, it just doesn't go right. And when I look at it, it doesn't smell right, and it doesn't feel right. And there's something, there's a voice within. You get it? The voice within. That's the anointing, or the unction and the meaning of it, in John's epistle. The voice that's there within.
I think the nicest um, description I've heard of those situations, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones always, he just used the illustration of the train. You know, he said, he, you, he said, I'm going to travel to London. I used to live in Bristol as a child. Let's pretend I'm leaving town and I'm going to go up to London in the train, you see. And so you book your ticket, don't you? And you make sure you've got your ticket and you make sure you know the time that it's going to go and so on and so on. Ready to go at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. I'm getting on the train and I'm going to London and I go down there. Plenty of time to spare and I get there and sure enough, I've got the right platform. I'm in the right place. I'm waiting for the right train that's due to come. It comes in fine. Everything's good. I find my seat. Everything's working. I sit myself down comfortably. Everything's fine. The doors are all slammed and shut and you hear the guard blowing his whistle and that's all good and then we don't move. It just doesn't move. And you think, well, <coughs> that's okay. Nine o'clock's going to leave? Oh yeah. Oh look, it's nine o'clock. Off we go. It doesn't happen. It doesn't, there's no off we go. And you think, wait a few minutes, could be anything. You know, a bit of time goes by and you think, that's odd. The train's going to be late. It's not leaving on time. It won't go from the station. Everything's right. I mean, I've got my ticket. I've got the time right. I'm on the right train. I'm in the right place. I, I saw them slam the doors. I, it's not going. And you, you get a bit agitated and think, why doesn't this thing move when everything adds up? Well, suddenly you look up ahead. You say, oh, hold it. Look at that signal on the railway line there. The old-fashioned ones, remember the signal was, uh, was, not, was not down? It wasn't ready to let the train go? Or if today, if we're going to get electronic, you know, the green light's not. It's the red light's still on. So no matter what else looks okay, it doesn't move until that light changes. Now, that is the last test within the believer. If the voice within still says, careful, then be careful. It's very beautiful, isn't it, really? You've got an antidote, <coughs> as it were. You've got the answer. And if you want to deal with deception, and the other side of it is this, get acquainted with what is true. As a matter of fact, that is the greatest safeguard of all. Against being deceived and falling into the lie of the devil and the, the whole wretched way in which this deceptive world of sin is at work to deceive us. If you know the true you will be a long while getting tricked by the false. Feed yourself on the true. All right? You know, they used to do it in the old banking days when they had money going over the counter. The teller, the new teller, spent all his time playing around for the first few weeks with a genuine note. So that when he put his hand on the wrong one, it felt wrong, you see, because he knew the true. I like that, <clears throat> that um, story in the book of Kings where Elijah takes along the the school of the prophets. All the young prophets are there to learn. And I actually remember the first time I ever ever spoke in ministry, not in the gospel so much, but the first time I ever spoke in ministry, I spoke on that event. Elijah at the school of the prophets. A bit of an odd one to choose when you're only a bit of a kid. But there was, <laughs> there was a big point of truth that I haven't lost yet. Because what happened was this. Lunchtime came for the school of the prophets. Remember? And they all went out to gather things to put into a big boiling, boiling pot and to make a stew. All right? And there was one young fellow there, he didn't know much about what he was collecting, and he, he gathered some wild goods or some, a wild vine. And he, he cast it into the pot, but it was poison. And so they came and served it up, and suddenly they have a drink, and somebody puts the spoon in the mouth and... Oh, he says, man of God, there's death in this pot. There's death in this pot. 
Whoa, says Elijah, quick, grab it and we'll sift it and sieve it and we'll sort it and we'll pull all the bits out. Oh, but you can't do that. They, they were shredded in. They were shredded in. They weren't plonked in, plop, plop, plop. They were, they were shredded in. That's how the devil always works. He shreds in, you see. He shreds in death into that which should be good. So what did Elijah do? He says, you bring some meal. You bring some of the good stuff. You bring some of the real thing and you just keep pouring it in. And the problem in that pottage was healed by the introduction of what was right and what was good. There's a principle there. Acquaint yourself with that which is right and that which is good. And you will find very, very quickly that Satan's intentions, Satan's wretched intentions to deceive you will suddenly be thwarted because you'll, you'll say, hey, this doesn't smell like the real thing, like the good. It doesn't do that. There's something wrong. And you go carefully, you go prayerfully, you saturate your mind biblically, and you, you are preserved. Fear fixed by faith. Deception fixed by knowing truth. And therefore, having something of the spirit of wisdom and of discernment. This is the world in which we live. And time's going to beat me by a long way to go much further. Just, I'll just touch the edge. This is the world in which we live. And the verses in the, uh, <coughs> are in the Revelation reveals to us the reality of that world. And it reveals to us the reality of living in that world. The verse we read in John 16 puts the whole thing together so beautifully. In me... Peace. In the world, tribulation. Peace, positive. Tribulation, the negative. Everything the believer has, because the believer's Christian's life is not a life of misery, you know. <laughs> you know that. It's not a life of despair where you're getting deceived all the time and you're getting frightened all the time and you're getting overwhelmed all the time. Not at all. There's something in the Christian life that rises above it all. And it's because of what we have in me, says the Lord Jesus. You have that peace. And indeed, everything positive that we have in our own souls is all because of the blessings, as Nick brought it to us this morning, the things that we have received in our Lord Jesus Christ. You just think about it. You know, you're in a world of absolute sadness, and it is sad. It's a sad, sad world. And we should be sad as well. But no, we rejoice. Why? In the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Because it's in him. You're living in a world, a, a hopeless world. People don't know where they're going. And you have hope. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope, is what the scripture says. You live in a world where there's turmoil. But we have peace. He is our peace. He gives peace. He made peace. In me ye shall have peace. People should be overwhelmed. Christians should be throwing in their faith, tossing in the towel, giving up, and why bother to battle on? Because we have victory. Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, there is this beautiful positive that keeps us stable 
It keeps us steadfast. It enables us to endure in the things of the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ to face the reality of tribulation and trouble. And on the other hand, we know the world in which we live. It's an enemy's land and Satan attacks and he doesn't stop. He did it to the Lord Jesus. Therefore, he'll do it to us for the servants not greater than his Lord. They hated him. They will hate us. Ahead of us may well be some serious and severe and meaningful persecution. But as he lived that life of suffering, of rejection, of shame, of loss, of hate, of death, so also they who come and follow after him must take up their cross and follow him, is what he says. That powerful picture that they would have understood in the Gospels, when regularly they saw a man, and he'd be staggering along to the gates outside the city, carrying a cross. And you'd know what that meant. That man was going out there to die. That man had ceased to have anything to do with the affairs of this world. And he was facing the world that was to come. It's a beautiful picture of the Christian. As you turn your back and you live in the light with your face facing forward to the glory of the world that is to come. And you bid farewell to the ways of the world to walk in them nevermore. For my Lord says, come. And he bids me go where he waits at the open door. And we take up that cross. Our cross. No to self. Death to all, within an ambition, turn our back on the world. We still live in it. Why? For the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We live in it, keeping his commandments, shining the light, the salt of the earth. We don't blend in with it, where they become seamless, sort of seamless joining between the Christian and the non-Christian. Never. We don't imagine that we're so much like them that we can actually get them to like us. And when they get to like us, then we can witness to them because they sort of like us and we're so nice and have so much to offer and we're so similar. No, no, no. We are there in the enemy's land. We're an offense to Satan. We're an obstruction to his program. We've got light when he wants darkness and he loves darkness. We've got salt that preserves when what he wants is a salt that is savorless. We don't live in a la-la land of imagination, but we press forward in the name of the Lord. And we've got our eyes on the right world. And we look ahead, and we say to ourselves, it's going to be wonderful in the coming day of glory that's going to come by and by. And what does it say in that old hymn? And I scribbled it down here somewhere. There it is, when all our troubles and trials are o'er, and we shall meet on that beautiful shore, just to be near the dear Lord we, dear Lord we adore. Twill through the ages be glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me. Glory for me. Glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face. Twill through the ages be glory for me. Twill be worth it all when we see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we bow once again, just so thankful that through the comfort of the scriptures, we do have great hope this morning. We came this morning feeling very unworthy and unable to express our gratitude and thanksgiving. And Father, as we've sat before the Lord, worshipped in the beauty of his holiness, 
And as we have read the word and seen the blessings provided for us, we feel overwhelmed that all that we need has been given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we seek thy grace upon us, our God and Father, that as we move into the week, we might move with our eye fixed upon him, our mind looking, our eyes looking above, our affections set on the things which are above where the Christ sits at the right hand of God. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our portion and blessing we humbly ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.